Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin today by showing you one of my little treasures. It's this little lamp. Uh, it's, uh, it usually sits on the mantelpiece in my study. Now, it's not an original, but it's a copy of an ancient lamp, the sort of lamp that was used for centuries in the ancient world to bring light to every situation, and the sort that's mentioned in our scriptures very re regularly. Now, this particular one is not an original, I wish it were. It comes from the gift shop at the Catacombs in Rome. And the Catacombs are these vast underground cemeteries that were used for centuries outside of Rome, uh, where people were buried or their bones were stored. And this particular lamp, like lots of lamps in the ancient world, has a symbol on it. And you can see it's an anchor. And that is not because of anything nautical or any relation to ships, but because the anchor was a symbol of the Christian church and the Christian faith for years before the cross was, um, symbolizing that we are anchored in Christ. And this is the sort of lamp, and whenever I see this lamp on my mantelpiece, it reminds me that this is the sort of lamp that Christians would have taken down into the catacombs when they went to worship, because Christians at that time weren't allowed to worship publicly or openly. It was quite a dangerous thing to do. And so they would go and hide in the catacombs in these vast underground chambers filled with the dead, and there they would celebrate communion, read the scriptures, share the good news together. And it reminds me of the secretive underground hidden world uh, that Christians inhabited for so m such a long time and which they still do today in many parts of our world, sadly. And it leads us very neatly into our reflections today on the underground hidden nature of uh, what's going on in our story today and the Passion Week story more generally. So come and see with me. Come and see and explore Deep, more deeply our reading today. Now the triumphal entry is found in all four of our Gospels and it starts what we would call Holy Week or Passion Week, uh, the events of Jesus's trial, crucifixion, death and resurrection. Now today we heard it from Mark's Gospel and we don't often read it from Mark's Gospel and so it's worth today picking out some of the nuances, some of the interesting things that Mark tells us. And I've been thinking a lot about Mark's Gospel lately. Every Sunday night since Christmas here at Putney, we've been studying together um, Mark's Gospel, going through it uh, verse by verse, pretty much. And it's been really fascinating with a group of others to see the particular emphasis that Mark brings to his narration of the events of Jesus's life. But also, I've been reading uh, this book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by a person called Richard Borkham. An excellent book, really interesting. Lots of interesting stories about how the Gospels came together and how they relate to the eyewitnesses, to the people who actually saw what was going on. And it's really sort of reignited my interest in Mark's Gospel and how it relates to the Apostle Peter and to the other Gospels. And Borkham in particular emphasizes the difference in emphasis between Mark's gospel and John's gospel. The first gospel to be written and the last. 
So we think, we're pretty sure, that Mark's Gospel was written in the 60s AD, so the first Gospel to be written down uh, uh, as opposed to be just being told orally. And John, written about 30 years later or so in the 90s AD. And he draws attention to one thing that we could easily miss, and that is the subject of names. And he challenges us to think about why some people in the Bible, like Jairus and his uh, Jairus's daughter, have names and other people don't. And he draws attention to how the situation changes between Mark and John's Gospel. And in many cases, we lose names over time, and that's very usual uh, when people are tell telling and retelling stories. So we lose some of the names uh, in Luke and Matthew and John that we find in Mark, for example, Bartimaeus. But interestingly, we also gain some names, and that's quite unusual uh, when people are telling stories. And he particularly notes how we gain the names uh, for the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus at Bethany, who is anonymous in Mark's Gospel, but is named as Mary, the sister of Martha, in John's Gospel. Similarly, we gain the name Peter as the disciple who cut off the ear of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane, not named in Mark, named in John. And we also gain the name of the person who lost their ear, Malchus, not named in Mark, named in John. And the reason he believes this happened is that when Mark was writing, or when Peter, and he believes very strongly that the apostle Peter was the person who told all these stories and Mark wrote them down for him, that there was still a danger in naming people, that this was still a dangerous story to tell. So in the first two cases, it was too dangerous to name Mary, who did this beautiful thing for Jesus, but who seemed to recognize him as the Messiah. And it was certainly too dangerous to name Peter, who had done this violent act of cutting off somebody's ear. And so Mark just left the names out, and his first readers would probably have known it, but he didn't want to write it down and get people into trouble. And in the case of Malchus, the servant who lost his ear, Malchus's family were probably still important people in Jerusalem, and so it was, again, too dangerous to name this person and to drag that story up again. And it's really interesting when we think of it and when we look at this gospel story in that light, to think that even 30, 40 years after the events that he is describing, Mark feels it is too dangerous to name these people, too dangerous, and that it would put put their lives possibly uh, at risk. And if this is true, which I think it is, then it would help explain why there is a greater sense of mystery and danger in Mark's passion story. And we see that clearly in today's reading. The disciples went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. They gave some key words to these people, and they were allowed to remove the donkey. And we find something very similar later in Mark's recounting of the events of the Last Supper. His disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? A very reasonable question. Does Jesus give them an address and a name or a street? No, he says... 
Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Very secretive, very hidden, everything anonymous, no names, and even we have what sound very much like passwords. You say one thing and the other person will say something else and then they know, you both know, you're the right people. I'm reading another book at the minute, or just finished it, all about Russian spies in the UK in the 1950s and 60s. And one of the incidents there describes how uh, two new spies come over and they've got to meet their KGB controller. And they meet in a tea room, a lion's tea house in Piccadilly. And MI5 were listening into these conversations. And they had to say, the two new people had to say, did I last see you in Mexico City? And the KGB controller had to say, no, we could only have seen each other in Ottawa. And then they could talk freely. Password, word and exchange. Now, interestingly, when Matthew and Luke tell this story, they're much more interested in the theological elements of this, of this important narrative of how Jesus is acclaimed and how that links to the prophecies in the Old Testament. But in Mark, the first gospel to be written, we retain this sense of secrecy and deception and deceit and it reminds us that this is that there is an underground atmosphere to this. And that's why I was so keen to record this downstairs in a basement or in a cellar. There is an underground atmosphere reminding us that Jesus was a dangerous individual, leading a group of people who many people thought were rebels and who were really threatening the established order. Remember how scared Peter was of being recognised by the fire outside the high priest's house and how all the male disciples fled in terror in the garden. This was a dangerous place to be. Jesus was a dangerous person to know. And we have become so used, I fear, to hearing this familiar story and to emphasising those theological elements of the story that we have arguably forgotten that it is a narrative that involves secrets, betrayal and enormous danger. It is much more like a thriller than a novel, we might say. Now, that's all very interesting, but at Putney this Lent we've been thinking about two key questions and I'd like to ask those today. What does this story tell us about Jesus? What does this story tell us about us? What does this story tell us about Jesus then? Well, it tells us very clearly about the bravery involved in entering Jerusalem like that. At the beginning of Lent, I talked about, as most other preachers will have done, about Jesus in the wilderness. And I talked about how there were two paths out of that desert place. One leading back to Nazareth, to security, to comfort, to safety and one leading inexorably to Jerusalem, to confrontation and ultimately death. And Jesus had a choice about where he went, which path he took, and he chose the much, much harder path. Jesus knew that his message was confrontational and divisive, and that he was challenging those in authority and, of, and power, both Jews and Gentiles. 
in Mark's Gospel in particular, we see that he understood this. He understood the risks that he was facing. And he repeatedly tried to tell and warn his disciples, but they did not want to listen. They did not wish to understand. And that is why probably they were so shocked and surprised at the end. But we can see this so clearly throughout Mark's Gospel, but perhaps most in so, most in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says to the disciples, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus is afraid. Jesus does know fear. This is not the world he wants to live in, but for our sakes he is willing to face that ultimate challenge. It is here in this holiest of weeks, with its blood, sweat and tears, that we see Jesus' humanity laid bare. Here is someone entering this terrible dark world of secrets and lies and choosing to do so for our sakes. What does this story tell us about us? Well, I'm speaking today in Putney, in a large church, empty admittedly, but a church designed to attract people's attention, with a large tower, big windows, notice boards, a website, everything saying, come on in, here we are, here we are, we're proud of who we are, we're proud to follow Jesus. But this story reminds us that this was not always the case and is not always the case today in our world. It reminds us that Jesus and the events around his death were still controversial decades afterwards, meaning that Mark could not write down those names for fear of persecution. My Little Lamp reminds us of how that continued to be the case for centuries afterwards. And we are reminded that that is still the reality for many Christians across the world today who cannot worship openly and must attend underground, secret churches. The story challenges us to take risks for our faith and to be subversive, to go underground sometimes, to challenge the status quo, to go beyond the obvious and search for the hidden truth. It reminds us that following Christ means that we cannot always be part of the crowd. We cannot always be popular. And this is what Christians have done for 2,000 years, following in the footsteps of Christ. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr. and Oscar Romero, to name but a few. People who followed Jesus and entered a secret underground world for his sake and paid the ultimate price. God willing, we will not be called to that same fate. But this story of fear and subterfuge reminds us that we are called bravely to witness to God's radical love for all people in all situations, and that sometimes that will involve risk and danger to ourselves. So on this Palm Sunday, let us recognize and give thanks for the bravery of Christ as he entered Jerusalem, knowing the fate that awaited him, 
but still facing it for our sakes. Let us remember God's church persecuted and oppressed for those still worshipping underground. And let us pray for the courage to follow Christ wherever he may lead us, in good times and in bad, knowing that ultimately our journey will never end underground in the tomb, but will always end in the bright light of God's eternal home, God's eternal plan for each one of us. So come and see, come and hear, come and recognise that good news for all people, this Palm Sunday and always. I finish with a prayer. Let us pray. Lord of the swaying palms, the stones of earth and beasts of burden bear witness to your coming. Lead us from the violence of empire and the collusion of crowds to a world remade and a new song for all creation. Through Jesus Christ, our crucified God. Amen.